Get ready to play some literal fantasy football. You're listening to the Quiggler Podcast, the Harry Potter book club for people who have a lot of thoughts about Quidditch. This, said Wood, is the golden snitch, and it's the most important ball of the lot. It's very hard to catch because it's so fast and difficult to see. It's the seeker's job to catch it. You've got to weave in and out of the chasers, beaters, bludgers and quaffle to get it before the other team's seeker because whichever seeker catches the snitch wins his team an extra 150 points so they nearly always win. I'm Heather Price-Wright. And I'm Alex Dallenberg. Welcome to episode four. Here we are. It's exciting. We're still back. I love this plan. I'm excited to be a part of it. This episode we are talking about three chapters that are chock-a-block full of things happening. This uh, episode's chapters are Quidditch, The Mirror of Erised, and Nicholas Flamel. This podcast, as all our podcasts, will contain ample cursing. It will contain spoilers, especially as we get toward the end of the book. The actual plot. Right. We're going to tell you what (laughs) happens in this book. And now we're in the second half of it. And you're going to find out some, first some red herrings of the first water, and then some actual outcomes of plots. This week's episode will also contain adult themes. This week's adult themes are orphanhood, aggravated assault, once again, against Neville. Darling Neville oh, on Neville. bottom, screaming books, it's a very scary Ugh. scene, Christian holidays in a pagan world, choking hazards, and the literal saddest shit you will ever read. Cry now. Cry later. Cry forever. forever because buckle up, we are in for the sad part of Harry Potter. Let's do it. In this week's chapters, we're introduced to the game of Quidditch, which is kind of a wizard kind of... Actually, Quidditch makes no sense. But Harry wins the game of Quidditch despite being cursed by... Maybe we think Snape. Who knows? There's a little bit of intervention by Hermione. Harry wins, catches the snitch in his mouth. Fast forward. It's Christmas time. We're having a party. The Weasleys get some sweaters. Harry gets... The most badass invisible cloak you can possibly imagine. Um, invisibility cloak. The cloak isn't the invisible. Cloaking. It makes it's, Harry It invisible. is an invisibility cloak. It becomes invisible once you uh, put it on, wrap it around your body. Harry uses it to sneak into the forbidden section of the library because, boom, they're looking for somebody named Nicholas Flamel, who they believe is in connection with whatever crazy dog is uh, guarding. Uh, there's some creepy moments, some a scary screaming book. Harry is forced to flee from Argus Filch and his cat wife into a classroom which contains a mirror which shows him his dead parents. That's crazy. Harry becomes uh, somewhat obsessed with his vision of what could have been and what he will never have. (laughs) Oh, sorry. (laughs) And uh, comes back night after night until Dumbledore's like, dude, I get it, but you might want to ease off on... uh, He's like, don't be nostalgic, 11-year-old whose parents are dead. Fast forward, another Quidditch game. Harry wins again, figures out who Nicholas Flamel is thanks to a chocolate frog card. After the Quidditch game, Harry has just taken a Twilight spin on his Nimbus 2000, and he sees Severus Snape shaking down Professor Quirrell in the Forbidden Forest and talking about his little bit of Hocus Pocus. This further reinforces the idea that Harry, Ron, and Hermione have cooked up that Severus Snape is dun-dun-dun trying to steal the Sorcerer's Stone. Also, 
we learn what the Sorcerer's Stone is. So, the first thing we encounter... Yes, we encounter Quidditch for the first time. The wizard sport with four balls. Oh man, been thinking about Quidditch for a long time. What do you think about Quidditch? Um, my first instinct is to say that Quidditch is fucking bullshit. We have a sport where a lot is going on, but nothing important is An happening. An enormous <laughs> amount is happening and nothing matters. It's right. like life. Uh, Maybe it's I just don't know. A is, Qu- is Quidditch a metaphor for life? So yeah. anyway, so you have ten points a goal for scoring with the quaffle, which is hard to begin with. I yeah, mean, which first is of all, di- which is di- which is Quidditch di- is wickedly challenging, and almost none of the players make any difference in the outcome of the game. Right. One out of what seven <laughs> players? Yes. Yeah. It's like if football only the kicker could win. It's actually even worse than that okay. because there's like That's a That's as far as my sports ball understanding <laughs> goes. My sports ball ends at the kicker. Anyway, go so on. So to refresh you, I mean, I'm assuming we're all on the same page here. Well, maybe we're not on the same page in terms of whether Quidditch is a legitimate sport or not, but... Uh, but the rules snitch, of Quidditch. Yeah, we know the rules. You catch the snitch, it's 150 points. Also, the game ends when you catch the snitch. So as uh, Oliver Wood explains to... Harry, the team that catch the snitch uh, wins. I mean, he doesn't give a percentage, but I would say, what do you think? The, what do you think percentage on ninety nine point nine percent of the time? Well, we see a situation later in the series where that doesn't happen, but I almost think J.K. maybe had to write it in to prove that uh, that the rules of Quidditch function makes, at all makes literal any sense. And yet, wizards can't get enough of this crazy-ass sport. Ron talks about it constantly. McGonagall, as we discussed last episode, basically... Yeah, McGonagall... There's like a Hogwarts recruiting... There's not a scandal because it's never uh, uncovered. Well, McGonagall throws all of her very hardcore Scottish scruples out the window. Out the window for this fucking crazy-ass game. This game. I mean, maybe it's just that they're coming from a place of scarcity because there's no other... There's no other... They don't have any sports. I mean, they don't even have darts. No. Like it's a na- just to name a random they, just, sport. The only, the oh, well, they have wizard chess. Okay, wizard. Which, but that's, on the other hand, is sick as fuck. Yeah, that's badass. Yeah, wizard chess is a thousand times better than regular chess. And wizard, any sports ball is nothing. It's nothing. The funny thing about it is she writes the Quidditch scenes very well. They're exciting. I mean, if you can remove the knowledge that nothing on the field matters because only catching the snitch counts, then these are pretty tight sports scenes. Yeah, they're really nicely written sports scenes. Yeah, but she, could, then, she could fucking cover basketball. But then you have Harry hovering above the pitch thinking, okay, Wood and I's game plan is for me to look for the snitch and catch it as soon as I possibly can. Well, yeah, that's a great fucking game plan. That's the only, the only game plan game. you could possibly have. In the Hufflepuff game, Wood is like, Harry, okay, we need you to catch the snitch fast as fuck. And it's like, it's like yeah, you just, just catch it as soon as you see it. You know, It's like, no pressure, man, but you got to catch the snitch. No fucking duh. And- I, I guess, okay, I would challenge the notion that none of the other players matter. Because at various points in these games and also in future games, the beaters are actually. Yes, I was thinking. I was thinking about this uh, in the shower, as one does with uh, (laughs) with Harry Potter, and I thought, okay, the bludgers make sense because they're basically like the offensive linemen. Yeah, the bludgers are just obstruction. But if I was put in charge of a Quidditch team, I'd just be Mm -hmm. like, okay, chasers. You're chasing after the damn snitch now, because that's the only thing that matters. But, I mean, yeah, it it wouldn't even be like if the kicker won the game. It would be like if there was some other mini-game going on the sidelines, 
where the kicker was racing the other kicker, and whoever won that actually got, won the football game. Got 150 and points. Meanwhile, which, the footballers <laughs> made like 40 points tops. That's the other thing is Quidditch games until the snitches caught are pretty low scoring. Quidditch games aren't so high scoring, like by yeah. and large. If you catch the snitch and still lose, you suck. Yeah, your team is fucking terrible. Not only do you suck, you have a terrible seeker because he just should have waited till you got within 140 have points. Walked to the other seeker. <laughs> and it's the but you said that you thought maybe that the rules functioned so in a plot way. Structurally, it kind of makes sense because so Harry's the seeker, and as happens with the rest of the books, everything hinges on him. The team either wins gloriously or fails dramatically because of his ability or inability to catch the snitch, as we see happen in uh, you know multiple episodes of Quidditch. It just makes him the man. That actually makes Quidditch worse for me, because that is a very, very heavy-handed way of establishing this character as the man. Right. That's actually way more fucking annoying than it's just like a badly constructed wizard right. sport. Right, I mean, it's like, it's crazy metaphor for his like chosen, his anointedness. Right. It is, I think you're right that it's a metaphor, but I think it's a bad one. It's right. much too heavy But I mean, yeah, yeah. As a plot device, it's very... It's pretty ham-fisted. It's pretty... It's, and as a it's, sport... It's a, blu- it's a bludger of a plot point. <laughs> you know, I mean... I would also agree with you. I would say that those are great set pieces. Oh, they're, yeah, they're like, spectacular. Until you think for even a second about the rules of Quidditch, right. you are really deeply enjoying the Quidditch game. And that's why there are Harry Potter fans out there that will defend this. Right. to their dying breath. This was one of the reasons. Quidditch was one of the major reasons I did not... Confession time, everybody. Here's what I got. One of the major reasons I did not read Harry Potter until well into college was Quidditch? was because of Quidditch. My sister was explaining the books to me, and she's like, and then there's this amazing game. It's called Quidditch. It's played on broomsticks, and I'm like, I'm here with you. That sounds cool, you know, flying sports. And then she's like, and then whoever catches the snitch gets 150 points. And you were and like, the game ends. I'm I like, cannot I, involve myself with a sport that like, badly designed. I cannot join this universe because <laughs> yeah, Quidditch, broken everything. Quidditch is is a is is pretty broken. The way I justify it to myself is that everything wizards do is so loopy. It's true. Okay, that it makes a certain sense that wizards would be extremely into a sport and extremely into the play of a sport where 95% of the play is irrelevant. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe, I mean, they have... Maybe in the wizarding universe, winning is not the main reason that you would go to witness a sporting event. Except they're all obsessed with winning, so... Yeah, no, that was, that was, <laughs> that was nothing. That's not true. McGonagall literally commits an ethics violation to get a better Seeker. That's actually pretty smart, because the Seeker is the only one whose job actually matters. It's true. And besides the It makes me feel bad for Oliver Wood. (laughs) I know. And that's why I know Wood is insane, because he's like, we got to train our fucking asses off. And it's like, you don't, though. It's like, no, man. You deeply do not need to train, (laughs) because your sport has only one player. It's Harry and the Weasleys. The rest of you are halftime entertainment. You may as well be the dancing dads. There was a GameCube game for Nintendo GameCube that Where was you could play Quidditch, Quidditch World Cup. You could play the Quidditch World Cup. They must have World had to Cup. change the rules. They didn't change the rules. And it was terrible. And it was a fun game, but at the end of the day, you're still playing Quidditch. So it's like, I I don't know. Give me Madden. All right. So uh, Quidditch is going to be one of our macro quibbles for the universe. 
of Harry Potter. Yeah, I also feel sad because it throws such a sad bone of like gender equality to the three fucking chasers. Oh, the chasers. Because like Alicia and um, Alicia, excuse me, Alicia and Angelina and Katie Bell are like baller athletes, but they have this totally meaningless job. And if they were just muggles, could maybe fucking play volleyball and like actually matter <laughs> in their sport. All right, here's a question. So it's played on broomsticks. Mm-hmm. How athletic do you think Quidditch is? I'm thinking core strength. I think just like with the, the turning around. Yeah, like I'm sure it requires some strength and some. I mean, clearly like dexterity and, and like coordination, sp- spatial awareness, but. It's not like an aerobic sport. I would no, liken I it say not. to like horseback riding slash if NASCAR also had catching. <laughs> I don't know. That I would like to see. <laughs> what would they catch? We're going to play motorsports hockey. You know, it's like polo. Yeah. If anything, it's like polo because the thing, your actual means of propulsion is not your body. So it's not like a cardiovascularly challenging sport, but it requires a lot of control a lot of muscular strength, and a lot of coordination. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, I think it's at least medium athletic. I mean, if I saw it in the Olympics, I wouldn't be like, that's not a real sport. There's worse sports than Quidditch in the Olympics. There's fucking curling, which is just Quidditch on ice. Yeah, but curling's rules make sense. Yeah, but you, ugh, cur- whatever. We have a whole other, we don't, we'll do a whole podcast, just Alex that's and our next, fight about curling. That's our next podcast, actually. It's called Just Curl Talk. <laughs> I wish that was... Yeah, we're going to do that. Fun fact, the only concussion I've ever sustained was uh, was playing playing curling. Playing uh, is stretching it. And speaking Fell of... right con- over backwards. Speaking of concussions, we have to do this week's Neville injury count. Oh. Neville so sustains... added to last week's horrible skin lesions and... His broken v- His arm. broken wrist and various and other sundry injuries. This week we have the leg locker curse. That Malfoy practices on Neville. During the second Quidditch game... Neville is apparently knocked unconscious by either Crab, Goyle, or Draco, or some combination of the three, and then sent to the hospital wing. And just like doesn't wake up. Like it's no thing. They're like, oh, he's unconscious, but uh, Madame Pomfrey will bring him back. I mean, that is... That's a super serious injury. He probably has like TBI, a traumatic brain injury for yeah, uh, at least... Maybe the reason Neville's so fucking dumb is he's just clumsy enough that his brain is all rattled. Well, he was dropped as a child. Remember, he talks about they're all at the breakfast table, and he says that he found out... His family found out he was a wizard because his uncle, uncle dropped him out uncle a window. Uncle Algy dropped him out a window to like get some like a tart or something. But anyway, he but then he bounced. So, but on his head. Yeah, he was dropped as a child and yeah. then knocked unconscious by the Slytherin goonies. So they're goons. Goons, not goonies. Not goonies. Yeah, the Slytherin goons knocked him, knocked him unconscious. Knocked him I. Flat. How come no one's expelled for that? That's like a serious assault. We cannot even start to talk about wizard criminal justice slash disciplinary assistance right now we would be here all night and we have so much more to get through we have a lot of great much like a game of quidditch the discussion of such has the potential never to end yeah go on and on all right what else are you interested in well we gotta talk about families this week yes we do this is a set of chapters where two of the central familial relationships or sort of familial dynamics in this book get really fucking dark man right so first you have i'm gonna start with the easier one so first you have the weasleys right and the weasley christmas scene this is one of my favorite scenes in the book it's really touching mrs weasley sends each of the boys a hand knit sweater 
for Christmas, and she sends one to Harry. And um, who was not expecting any Christmas? Presents. Oh, Harry has never gotten a Christmas present before, so it's really sweet. He says to Ron, "I've got presents." What is Ron? Ron says, "I think Ron says, what did you expect? Turnips." Turnips, yeah. Well, the lovely thing about the sweater scene is that Fred and George are such delightful, puckish. They raise hell for their mom, but then, and I love this detail, they force Ron and Percy to wear their sweaters. Fred and George were wearing blue sweaters, one with a large yellow F on it, the other a G. Harry's is better than ours, though, said Fred, holding up Harry's sweater. She obviously makes more of an effort if you're not family. Why aren't you wearing yours, Ron? George demanded. Come on, get it on. They're lovely and warm. I hate maroon, Ron moaned half-heartedly as he pulled it over his head. You haven't got a letter on yours, George observed. I suppose she thinks you don't forget your name. But we're not stupid. We know we're called Gred and Forge. They're just stand-up family guys. They are. uh... They're sweet boys. And you you definitely get a lot of scenes, and later on even more, where there's a lot of tension between the Weasley twins and uh, their mother in particular. It's nice to see in this early scene how much they care for their mother. And And they're rapscallions, but they're much more grounded in who they are than Ron and Percy, who have a lot of the same issues with their family and their family legacy and where they fit into it and where they fit in the wider world in terms of class and and, value. And And they respond, they both respond to it in totally different ways, but... uh, You're right. No, Ron and Percy have a lot in common and they're really, really different, but they're two sides of the same Weasley coin, which is the desperate desire to set themselves apart from this warm, loving, but stifling and sort of identity erasing family unit. There's actually a scene when they first go and meet Hagrid in his hut. Harry introduces Ron. It's a very, it's a really poignant little moment. Hagrid takes one look at Ron and he says, another Weasley, eh? I've spent me whole life chasing your brothers out of the Forbidden Forest. So right away, I mean, Ron grapples with this with every wizard he encounters. Already people are putting him in the context of his more colorful and maybe seemingly more memorable family members. Even it's when like, even when they're being nice to him. Oh no, I mean, other, you know, others like Draco to be sweet. use it against him. Oh yeah, Draco's, Draco's really weird about people's families because Draco clearly has some like very serious insecurities about the stability of his own family, which I think is why Draco's so fucking awful like okay I just have to say I have to reiterate because Draco does this a couple of times in these chapters bullying someone because their parents were murdered oh my god yeah it happens again (laughs) no it happens like three times he's like I feel so sorry for people who have nowhere to go for Christmas first of all bullying someone for the murder of their parents is just like a really high level of fucked up for an 11 year old but also it's not like Harry's parents died in like a kind, like a lame way. Harry's parents got murdered. It's obviously really fucking sad, but in really badass fashion. Yeah. They got blown the fuck away by like the very face of evil. I just don't understand what in Draco compels him to find that something to like tease Harry about. Like that's such a weird thing to me. And what that says to me is that Draco is really profoundly insecure about his own place in the world because he's really fucking weird about Ron's family's money too. Yeah. Draco, like nobody else is obsessed with this. Hogwarts should add a guidance counselor. Oh my God. Hogwarts needs a fucking 
child yeah, psychologist. Because Madame Pomfrey is just not... She can mend broken wrists and apparently concussions. But not That's broken to hearts. to be seen. But not, yeah, not broken hearts. Which brings us to... Oh my god, you guys. The Mirror of Erised. That chapter, scene... Man. Oh my god, sends chills up my spine. One of the central tensions within the character of Harry Potter. And something that J.K. Rowling paints really nicely with a lot of skill and deftness. And in this chapter, it's so stark, is that Harry is a is a kid who, in the context of this wizarding world, he's kind of a kid who has everything. He shows up at Hogwarts and um, he's got a lot going for him. And the sad, beautiful, really profound tension at the center of the character, Harry Potter, is that he would give everything up, everything on the planet for a thing that all of the people around him take for granted, which is a family that's alive. These books are, at their core, about loss, each one of them, and about how to live with loss and go on with something you can't really bear, Yeah, but that you have to. And a child has to bear it. It comes back again and again, and it's complicated and added to, because folks... uh, the crying does not stop. The crying here. does not. Cry now, cry later, cry, cry forever. Cry forever. So I think the twin images in the mirror of Erised are actually a really interesting way of looking at this because what Ron sees in a lot of ways is what Harry has. Ron sees himself alone. Ron sees himself accomplished as an athlete, as a, as a person set apart. You know, he's head boy, whatever. Like that's not what Harry is right now, but... In a lot of ways, he's seeing himself as Harry Potter. And Harry would give up all of those things that are that he he has. And, and I think he, to his credit, feels lucky to have. I think when he gets to Hogwarts, he understands that he's fortunate in a lot of ways. But he would give up all of those things that are the dearest wish of... I mean, the Mayor of Erised shows you the dearest wish of your the heart. The deepest the singular desire for Ron that's just to be cool basically which I think also reveals a certain shallowness in Ron's character which yes his concerns aren't quite developed yet but Harry would give up all of that and sees himself as totally in every possible way ordinary except that people who love him are not dead which is brutal Harry was so close to the mirror now that his nose was nearly touching that of his reflection. Mom? He whispered. Dad? They just looked at him, smiling, and slowly Harry looked into the faces of the other people in the mirror and saw other pairs of green eyes like his, other noses like his, even a little old man who looked as though he had Harry's knobbly knees. Harry was looking at his family for the first time in his life. The potters smiled and waved at Harry, and he stared hungrily back at them, his hands pressed flat against the glass as though he was hoping to fall right through it and reach them. He had a powerful kind of ache inside him, half joy, half terrible sadness. How long he stood there, he didn't know. And you know what I love about them is that she never lets it get easy for him. No. I feel like a lot of times orphanhood or like the loss of family 
is really a plot device to propel characters into adventure. But in Harry Potter, Harry's loss is at the center of this fictional world. Like Luke Skywalker's aunt and uncle get blown away in the first 20 minutes and he never looks back. He's like, well, I'm going on a badass adventure now. The boxcar children immediately forget that it's sad that their parents are dead. And that they're homeless. And that they're homeless. I mean, that's a bad example. But there's, yeah, there's all these orphans in fiction. And orphanhood is this sort of fun, cool, rapscallion lifestyle. But these books are so much deeper and so much more emotionally powerful and resonant. And the reason we can read them again as grown-ups with so much love harry's loss and the loss that harry's loss of his family is in a way that's really deeply true to life i think is this central concern of his growing up and obviously there's all this other wonderful fun plotty magic-y great shit that happens and he discovers so much about this world and he's very important in it and there's this big good versus evil conflict and there's this big big baddie but the baddie I mean, God, up until the like the last showdown at the very end, the baddie really in this series is Harry coping over and over and over again in really profound ways with a totally unconquerable loss. Right. In no way is it ever okay. Like it's never going to get better. And he, he sees that in the mirror and you understand becoming obsessed with that. I mean, I'm actually sort of, one thing that amazes me in these chapters is the extreme extreme force of character and will it takes for Harry to move on with his life. I think that shows us a lot about him, that we see him pick himself up from that experience. Personally, I would be in like a horrendous depression for like months. Well, Dumb- if like, Dumbledore gives him props. Yeah. Yeah, he goes out, catches the snitch, solves the mystery of Nicholas Flamel. Yeah, good seg. Good seg. Otherwise, I'm going to just like sit here, cry now, cry later, cry forever. Ugh. Ooh. Okay. Let's talk about the mystery. What's the mystery? The mystery is, well, first it's what's the dog guarding. And then Hagrid. Then. Fucking Hagrid. Hagrid is the leakiest of ships and the loosest of lips. <laughs> Hagrid. Hagrid needs to like have zero secrets. Hagrid is like, that's between Dumbledore and Nicholas Flamel. It's like, what the fuck, dude? You had one job. To be fair, though, Nicholas Flamel's identity is on a trading card. No, no, no. But Hagrid is the one that tells them that Nicholas Flamel matters. Hagrid tells the secret. (laughs) That's true. It's funny how the kids throw themselves into this mystery without any... I love that about them. They're such go-getters. They're like, what if we just solved it? It's like, you guys are 11. You have a lot of homework. Like, you have to (laughs) practice this fucking insane sport for no good reason. And you're still like, we're going to also save this school because we've got some free time. I love it. But I don't think know they just... have to save the school at first, although they get... I mean, they know something is the yeah, fuck something, up. Something is, something is the matter. Something is not right, something. as Miss Clavel would say. So through various little plot machinations, they figure out that Nicholas Flamel is the inventor of the Sorcerer's Stone, the biggest MacGuffin in the history of these books until the next one. A MacGuffin is an object that exists in a fictional universe only to propel a plot. Nicholas Flamel, she whispered dramatically, is the only known maker of the Sorcerer's Stone. This didn't have quite the effect she'd expected. The what? said Harry and Ron. Oh, honestly, don't you two read? Look, read that. There. She pushed the book toward them, 
and Harry and Ron read, The ancient study of alchemy is concerned with making the sorcerer's stone a legendary substance with astonishing powers. The stone will transform any metal into pure gold. It also produces the elixir of life, which will make the drinker immortal. There have been many reports of the sorcerer's stone over the centuries, but the only stone currently in existence belongs to Mr. Nicholas Flamel, the noted alchemist and opera lover. Mr. Flamel, who celebrated his 665th birthday last year, enjoys a quiet life in Devon with his wife, Perinelle, 658. God, <laughs> J.K. Rowling is the queen of plot devices that are a little bit too big for their use in the plot. So the Sorcerer's Stone can turn any metal into gold, and burying the lead a little... <laughs> can make you immortal. Ron is like, man, wouldn't it be sick to turn shit into gold? Yeah, I'd love and to buy a Hermione's like, team. also you live forever. <laughs> and apparently Nicholas Fumel decided not to share this with anyone except his wife. Yeah, I have so many questions about like wizard regulatory oversight now because the source, like you guys have cured death and like one old man has a grubby little, that's described in the as first grubby, chapter, yeah. or the first set of chapters, as a grubby little package that is now living under Hagrid's pet. One old man's grubby little package. <laughs> the search for the Sorcerer's Stone. So we found out what the Sorcerer's Stone is. The characters have too few questions, I would say, about why Dumbledore is allowed to just fucking take possession of this thing. Well, they're part they're like business partners or whatever. But Study like, buddies. Why I... is it in private hands? Clearly he owns the sorcerer's stone because it was in his vault at Gringotts. No, I'm saying that is something that your government looks the fuck into. <laughs> that is yeah, that is crazy. Just because some guy invented like nuclear fusion doesn't mean that gets to just live in his fucking basement. <laughs> No, wizards are not very good at weighing the sort of public good and cost yeah. of their decision. There's just one guy that gets to drink the elixir of life. I don't understand that. And Why no, have a wizard no government super, at no all? No supervillains gone after this thing before? Yeah, that's the other thing. Wasn't, okay, spoiler alert, like, Voldemort's trying to get the Sorcerer's Stone. Nobody is shocked. Why is this the first time Voldemort's like, maybe I should just, like, why did he make horcruxes if the fucking Sorcerer's Stone exists? Like, Figure out how to make a Sorcerer's Stone, bro. You have, if he's like the, one of the most before. powerful wizards in history, just like make this, I don't. And then the other thing that's weird, and I'm sorry, this is like jumping the gun a little bit. I do just have to talk about this for a minute. Then it just goes away. Like this is not a concern in the rest of the books. Well, there is that part in book six where Dumbledore is just like Sorcerer's Stone. That was crazy. No, it's not. No, that doesn't happen. No, Alex made that up. That's in a every in every book. Somebody, a different character, just says. Remember when remember we remember the Sorcerer's remember Stone? Remember when there was a that remember be, how that could cure death? Yeah, I don't. Every every book somebody says that. I think Peeve says it in one, and uh, literally, Peeve's what? like, wish somebody hit me up with that before I died. Yeah, poor fucking Moaning Myrtle is just like, you know what would come in handy? The <laughs> Sorcerer's Stone. Fucking stone, uh, y'all. But meanwhile, that, that grubby solve, little package. That would solve presumably the fact that there's poverty in the wizarding world. Well, so that's or, the thing. That's although why then you'd flood, you'd flood the current, you'd, you'd, you'd flood, flood the, the market tri-metal gold, market. So, you know, there'd be rampant inflation. That's why it annoys me that she goes this hard with a plot device this early. The Sorcerer's Stone solves a lot of the problems 
that exist in this world that get worse throughout the course of this this <laughs> series. Do not come out the gate with eternal life. Too big. Too big for book one. It's not just eternal life, eternal infinite riches. gold. <laughs> yeah. Phenomenal cosmic power. Itty bitty no, grubby little package. Teeny, yeah, teensy grubby little package. So they, anyway, they figure out that that's what the thing is guarding. They really, really, really think Snape is trying to steal it. To be fair, Snape is shady as fuck. Yeah. What is Dumbledore doing meanwhile? Maybe. Not checking to make sure no one has tried to get the Sorcerer's Stone. I'll tell you that much because well, yeah, they he have only, tried. The first line of defense is a legit like lock. And it then a be pet. And then a pet. Overall, I don't understand this whole Hogwarts is the safest place in the world because no i feel no. that's basically disproven in every uh installment of it's this always series. like dumbledore is the best wizard there is too bad he succeeded at nothing in this book or any future books well we can get into whether the kid solving it is his plan or not like the mirror of era said is there because harry dumbledore wants him to find it yeah we think i think but I don't think he laid out the dominoes of this whole plot so it would turn out exactly right. some type of way. Well, that's just being a, conspira- a Dumbledore conspiracy theorist. No, that's being a Dumbledore determinist, which actually is a really good transition into why the fuck are wizards Christian? <laughs> okay, guys, they celebrate Christmas. And Easter. What deity, like what? That's true. It is a are celebration wizards... of the birth of Jesus Christ. Are wizards Christian? It can't be just cultural because their culture is entirely... Okay, like, they don't have electricity, but they do have Christ. Wizards know that Christmases can be a fine secular holiday if you're kind of agnostic and But where or, would they uh, get it from? They don't have any interaction with muggles, so where would their secular yeah. understanding of Christmas come from? I don't think this is ever explained. No. Also, the other thing that's weird is wizards don't have their own holidays. Yes, that is strange. Like, presumably within the wizarding, like, canon, there are the sort of magical versions of saints and deities and all these things that every fucking culture in the history of civilization has had feast days around. And the wizards just, like, wholesale co-opt of all things Christian holidays. Like, they don't even have, like, Christian and Jewish and Muslim well, holidays. Well, they're not, they're not completely isolated, though, because, you know, there's, uh, there's mixed families there's right, but muggle-borns. Like, Although I think if I was like found out as a muggle-born that I was somehow a wizard, I might start to doubt the tenets. Start God to doubt anymore? the tenets of my religious faith, uh, or not. I uh, maybe Jesus was a wizard. This is my theory. That's a whole go. Fine. Is this a real theory? I mean, he is able to perform miracles and other things and that would it. appear ma- that would appear. Magical? I don't even think... I think we should cut all of this. I do not think we should get into Jesus' This, is, this is possible because on the frog cards, various historical personages, like Agri- he mentions having an Agrippa card. Agrippa was basically chief of staff to Emperor Augustus. Uh, Ptolemy. Uh, no, he wasn't. But, you know, he was integrated into Muggle society. So we're making an argument that wizards have existed. Wizards in the, wizards in the past who seem to be great Muggles... We're right. also wizards. So wizard, wizard, wizard culture and was society less separated, has grown up alongside. Was less separated from the muggle world. It still doesn't make a lot of sense that wizards... But it wouldn't make sense because if Jesus was a wizard, in order to have a holiday about him, you'd have to believe that he died for everyone's sins. 
and was resurrected. And, you know, the tenets of... No, you'd have to believe in the divinity you'd have to, of Christ. Yeah. That's what Christmas so is with, about. So wizards are inexplicably Judeo-Christian. They're although, not Judeo-Christian, though. They're Christian. That's true. They They're don't not do, fucking celebrating Hanukkah. They do Hanukkah. They're not doing, like, a Passover feast. The other thing is, modern wizards, like, they know so little about muggles. Right. Like, Mr. Weasley doesn't know how to, like, use the mail. They've never He's, seen, like money why would they be so incredibly well acquainted with pretty nuanced celebrations of kind of a semi-secular muggle christmas like why do they have christmas trees where who did they get that from also hilarious too because of the long history of uh, burning witches in yeah that's true also <laughs> christian yeah christian christians aren't psyched about witchcraft or witchcraft wizardry. or wizardry why do they celebrate christian holidays the holidays are always really fun set pieces but i'm I just i can't get past halloween i'm gonna buy because halloween is pagan spooky yeah halloween is sort of like death cult like there's lots of there's lots of reasons that a a, a, a magic based culture a, like a witchcraft based culture would celebrate halloween but christmas and easter nonsense Fucking nonsense. Madness. So, who's your unsung hero? For these chapters, my unsung hero is Dean Thomas, a proud soccer slash football, uh, if we're going across the pond, fan. Takes his West Ham poster to Hogwarts, which Ron is really... Irritated by. Irritated by, because the pictures don't move for one thing, and... Also, it's not played on broomsticks, and it's like, well, bro, the sport also makes sense and involves actual athletic ability. So Dean, sticking with a logical sport, also asks when there's a hard foul on Harry while he's trying to get the snitch, which is the one thing we've established that matters. He says, red card, red card. And Ron's like, there's no red card. Or first he's like, what's a red card? Then he's like, there's no red cards. You can't get ejected from the game, which... uh, is dumb. Is another... Dean is right. Soccer <laughs> is better. right. There should be All a mechanism Dean. to eject players from the sport of Quidditch, especially if they foul the seeker while he's going for the snitch, because that's the only thing that matters. Instead, a penalty of 10 points is awarded. So yes, that is why seekers are often horribly injured, because you have every incentive to literally break their neck. And no reason not to within the rules of the game. So Dean Thomas, you know, he participates, he goes to the game. I think in his heart of hearts, he feels much as we do. Yeah, he knows Uh, it's bullshit. Who's your unsung hero? Oh, Lee Jordan. Yes. Also for Quidditch reasons, Lee Jordan's announcing of the Quidditch game is masterwork. And I love that you can hear Professor McGonagall screaming at him on the mic whenever he gets very, very biased. McGonagall certainly wouldn't want anyone doing anything unethical that would help uh, (laughs) help Gryffindor win a Quidditch match. Um, (laughs) No, she's like all about keeping up appearances though. (laughs) Anyway, also Lee Jordan is uh, sort of a backward, uh, he's my through line unsung hero because he has a giant tarantula immediately on the Hogwarts Express. The first thing Harry sees is Lee Jordan showing people a huge fucking spider, which is awesome. And then Lee Jordan and the twins have to like skedaddle off from some kind of confrontation they're having because they think they found a new secret passageway. So Lee Jordan seems like a very fun friend. He is a super skilled color commentator. I hope he grows up to do that professionally. And also Dean, Thomas, and Lee Jordan, two of fairly few black characters and black students at Harry Potter. I don't actually know the politics of race in the wizarding world, but I'm sure it's rough. I love Lee Jordan. Excellent. So that's that. What are we reading next week? Next week, we are reading 
Norbert, the Norwegian Ridgeback, the Forbidden Forest. Yeah. And that's it. Good ass chapters, guys. So, two, just two chapters to read. Yeah, but one of them has a dragon yeah. in it, so. Well, that's big a topic. Good stuff. Literally and figuratively. This week's audiobook clips were by Audible, and they are the performance by Jim Dale, who is incredible, of Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone. Rate, review, subscribe. And if you want to get in touch with us, we have an email. It's quibblerpodcast at gmail.com. This week's episode was brought to you by Chocolate Frogs. Good to eat and good for information when you need it most. When you can't Google, open a chocolate frog. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, amigos. Happy Harry Pottering.